Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks. We are walking the great battlefields of Europe and I have to say, having a great time doing it. Let's jump into this week's episode. It's a good one. It's going to be very uh, very particularly important to my co-host as this is his uh, his stomping ground from where he grew up. There's a very big connection to, uh, to where he's from in England. Pete Smith, welcome back to Battle Walks. Tell us what we're doing this week. Hi, Matt. Well, we're going to be um, following the Hull Pals. So we're going to talk about the raising of the Hull Pals. And then the action that I suppose is remembered most in Hull because of the terrible casualties, the fighting at a place called Oppie Wood on the 3rd of May 1917. It's part of the, the bigger Battle of Arras. And then uh, another part of the, of the Battle of Arras, this is called uh, the Third Battle of the Scarp, uh, the 3rd to the 4th of May 1917. Now, we've touched on Arras a few times on the podcast. It is a big, wheeling, complicated battle. We talked about it when we did Bullacore. We talked about it when we did Vimy Ridge. It's, there's so many elements to this battle. And I, let, let, we, won't, we won't, in this podcast, try to break the whole thing down. But suffice it to say that this is a huge battle that took place in 1917 and involved a very large number of units in a very big landscape. And I think this is the best way to approach it, what we've been doing, Pete, is just breaking it down into these small, manageable chunks because I suppose at the end of the day, for the men on the ground, that's what the battle was. They, they were not particularly interested in the big strategic picture. They were interested in what was happening in that field in front of them. 
I think most of them uh, wouldn't have even had the opportunity, even if they had been interested to know what was going on, they wouldn't have been told. We're still in the period where men weren't particularly briefed on the big picture. This was just, for them, an important action, and they knew what they had to do, and and they needed to get it done. Um, And I think that will remain very much almost to the end of the war. It's really in 1918 where the men have felt it's necessary to to give them a better briefing so that they know uh, a little bit more about what's going on. Actually, I'm, I'm wrong there. I'm just thinking, because this is just prior to uh, to the action that takes place at Messines, and Messines is really the first big action where that where the men are briefed properly. So, so perhaps we're getting close. We're getting close to the men knowing a little bit more about what was going on. And this is an interesting walk we're doing because we're walking the ground in France where the battle occurred. But uh, as we said at the top, there's a big connection to a, a place in England that is very close to your heart. So Hull, or Hull, as you say, H U W L. Um, for our Australian our Australian listeners who, uh, who might not appreciate the Northern English accent, but tell us where where, uh, where exactly are we? Let's talk about the UK first. Where is this place, and why is it important to you? Okay, so we're in the the north east of England. Um, it's um, a fairly a fairly I think the third largest city. I'm not quite sure where it stands now, but for a long time, third largest city uh, in the UK. Um, Main trade fishing. It's uh, famous for uh, for fishing and whaling. Going back a, a century, and whaling w- was big. Um, mainly nowadays, it's a direct route uh, to the, the continent. So there's a, a regular ferry service from Hull to Holland uh, and elsewhere. So it's still a, an important port. Uh, sadly, the fishing's completely gone from being the number one fishing port in the UK. Now, no fish are landed in Hull at all. And this is the area where you grew up, I assume. It's where I was born. So I was uh, born uh, in Hull, uh, moved to a little village outside of Hull. And in fact, um, for that reason, we crossed the, the, the boundary and into the East Riding. And I actually went to uh, Beverley, to school in Beverley, which is uh, a, like the county town. Uh, Hull's the big industrial city. So I, I'm, I'm in between the two. My father was born in Hull as well, uh, my grandfather. So yeah, so Hull's my hometown. Talk to me about the men who came from Hull and uh, enlisted in the First World War and went off to fight, because it's a pretty, it's a pretty significant part of the story of the British forces during the First World War. Yeah, it is indeed. I mean, what we're going to be talking about are the PALS battalions, the, the units that were raised specifically for volunteer force for fighting in the Great War. Um, so I'm going to take you right the way to 1914 and to what happened in 1914, because what became very, very obvious very, very quickly is we needed a nationalistic, a national army, and we didn't have one, and we were going to be fighting a country or countries that had national armies. Germany, everybody did military training, they were all conscripted, uh, and so it's an enormous national army, and we have this regular fighting force, very professional, but we need to expand it drastically. So the man that really recognised, uh, and is, is, is the man that we remember, is uh, Field Marshal L. Kitchener, and he's pointing finger on those famous posters, your country needs you. Well, he is the man that really is tasked uh, to to try and uh, recruit, to try and get these men to volunteer. And he starts very early. Britain went to war on the 4th of August, and on the 7th of August in 1914, we get the first, uh, basically, enlistment posters trying to persuade people to volunteer. What we then get is... I suppose, an idea that forms... Now, there is some suggestion that it may have been the War Office that suggested it to a a gentleman called Lord Derby. Um, Or is that pronounced Derby? 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 Always struggle with that one. Um, I think it's Derby. 
Derby. I'm going to stick with Derby, Lord Derby. Um, on the 24th of August, he received permission from the uh, from the War Office to raise uh, the Liverpool Pals, so the first of the Pals battalions, and that's where we start really with this. It's him, Lord Derby, who starts this this process of suggesting that maybe cities, big conurbations, would like to raise volunteer forces. Um, even pay for them to a certain extent, pay for their uniforms, pay for their lodgings, get them all organised, and then hand them over to the to the uh, to to the military when they're at a certain state of readiness. And Hull had had a reluctance to volunteer. There weren't that many volunteers uh, uh, in Hull in the early days, and so Hull, it's it's thought. Is, is ripe for, for kind of suggesting that perhaps this would be a good idea. And one of the reasons we believe, certainly in the whole Daily Mail at the time, people were reluctant to join up because they, they wanted to join up with their mates and they didn't want to end up with people they didn't know. And so this is part of the key to this whole strategy of, of getting guys to, to enlist together. And so what we get on August the 29th, a chap called Lord Numbenholm, his actual proper name was Charles Wilson. He's a local ship owner. He is. Uh, he meets Kitchener and uh, basically gets the okay to start raising a uh, a group of volunteers, volunteer battalion. First of all, just one battalion to uh, to serve on the uh, on the Western Front. That is going to expand rapidly because he's very clever. What actually happens is they decide, wouldn't it be a great idea if they could, as well as being geographic, these people are all going to be from Hull, they're all going to come from Hull, but wouldn't it be a great idea if we can actually split them down into also, I suppose, social levels? And so the 10th Service Battalion, which is the first battalion that's raised, becomes known as the Commercial Battalion. And that's because they're all commercial type guys. The 11th Service Battalion becomes the Tradesmen's Battalion. It's, it's obvious what's going on here. The, the next battalion, the, the 12th Battalion, becomes the Sportsman's Battalion. And then the final battalion, the 13th, is known as Tothers. In the Yorkshire dialect, the Others. In other words, they don't fit into any of the, uh, any of the above. It's absolutely fascinating, Pete, and I particularly like that idea that you could call yourself a sportsman and uh, because you were good at golf or tennis or hunting and and join up with other other fellows who saw, them, saw themselves in the same way. I should point out for our Australian listeners as well that we focus a lot on the PALS battalions coming out of the UK. A very similar system actually applied in Australia that men from the same locality enlisted and, and went off together and there was a, there were numerous sportsman battalions that came out of Australia as well. The, probably the big distinction was the geographic areas were much larger in Australia. So there would have been less of that uh, that comradeship from being from the same local area but it's still applied men from where i grew up west to Ilong, actually where where my family farm was at mallee plains they all went off and joined the 20th battalion so if you served in the 20th battalion particularly early in the war particularly at gallipoli and in the early days of the war you could be pretty confident that the men around you had at least enlisted from the district where you lived and worked so it was the same loose system applied in australia uh, just from uh, much larger geographic areas I think this one as well, we, we often think that every single person here came from Hull, but they didn't. They came from further afield. They may sometimes have had connections with Hull, or they may have come from the, the larger uh, East Riding, so East Riding of Yorkshire, East Yorkshire. Um, but the, the titles, I'm just going to read the title because it just explains the whole, the whole kind of gambit. It's the 10th Service Battalion. Service means that they're volunteers for the war. Um, it's then brackets, First Hull and then the East Yorkshire Regiment. 
So it doesn't even, in their actual official title, it doesn't even mention the commercials, and then they're known as the commercials. So it's a, it's a right mouthful. But it actually tells the whole story exactly of how that battalion, that's the 10th battalion, has been raised, the first Hull. But as I say, they weren't necessarily all from Hull. Before we get on to how they, uh, how they went during the war, uh, something I noticed that was very interesting was Hull was actually bombed in 1915. Now, tell us that story. That, you know, so while the men are off <laughs> getting ready to fight and... And, and off in France, the hull itself is coming under attack from the Germans. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. As it will be heavily bombed, I think it's the most uh, heavily bombed uh, uh, city during the Second World War, and it's because of its its docks and the fishing, because that's important for food. Um, well, in the First World War, it was also bombed uh, by Zeppelins. So it's uh, one of the, the first places to be bombed by Zeppelins. And I made a little comment in my in my notes here, is how would you feel if you'd been, uh, if you were a soldier serving either in France or in uh, in somewhere else in the UK, and discovered that your uh, your hometown is being is being bombed from the air? And of course, that is part of the whole reason why the Germans are doing it. It's it's not because it's it's going to be a really successful weapon. Uh, it's it's a terror weapon. It's so high up that the bombing is is indiscriminate in in, in the extreme, and so it, it's a real terror weapon. And on the sixth of June in nineteen fifteen, the whole pals were actually in training and also on the coast. They were doing some defensive work on the coast. There was a, there was a worry at the time that the Germans may possibly invade. Um, and of course, uh, they then uh, heard uh, about the the hull was being bombed. And in fact, I'm just going to go to a. Um, a I've got a I've got a set of medals. I've been very interested in the Hull Pals for years, and I was uh, given a, a set of medals by uh, uh, an elderly couple whose father had actually served uh, in the Hull Pals, and um, I got to know them very well. and And they gave me an account. Their the, their father, who had served, had actually recorded an account. And part of the account, I'm just going to read you here. It's been transcribed. Um, it says, on June the 6th at 11pm, the alarm sounded and we turned out, this is when they're on the coast, they turned out expecting the Germans had landed. However, when we lined up in the square, the colonel told us that reports had come in by telephone to say that a Zeppelin was coming up the River Humber, Hull's on the banks of the Humber, with the intention of bombing Hull. That's one of the reasons it was bombed so heavily, it was easy to find this big estuary guided planes coming from the continent uh, to, to the city. We were given 10 rounds of ammunition and told to open up independent fire if the Zeppelin came over the camp. Being high up on the Yorkshire walls, we could see flashes of light over Hull, and those would be the bombs. It was, it was during the night. We all had families in Hull, and the consensus of opinion was that we should all get back there. So you can see how it's unsettling these men. We were about 8 or 10 miles away, and there was no transport of any sort. The officers could see we were getting restless and told us that, that we were in telephone communication with Hull and that anyone with families in the affected areas would be given leave the following day. So it's a good account to give you an idea of, of how that kind of bombing affected the soldiers both in France and in training in Britain. Yeah, absolutely. We should say at this uh, this stage as well for anyone who uh, is new to the story of the First World War, Zeppelins are large German airships. There were no aircraft that could uh, could make the journey from uh, from Germany over to England at that stage of technology. Uh, so the Germans brought in these quite fearsome um, airships, these Zeppelins. And um, today you can find the, the, <laughs> a lot of them are shot down and uh, they're, they're, it's quite collectible. You can find quite a few uh, remnants and, and, and detritus from the Zeppelins. Quite a famous, but and um, not you know not not as well known as it should be. A chapter of the First World War. 
interestingly, why we get so many little bits of, of Zeppelins available is because they were cut up into tiny fragments and sold uh, to raise money for, for various uh, military charities. Uh, and so you could you could buy a little piece of a zeppelin at, at the at the time. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's a fascinating part of, of the war. I won't go into the whole story of it, but basically the zeppelin uh, menace finishes when we dis- uh, uh, invent an incendiary round because they're full of inflammable gas, and if you hit them with an incendiary round, then th- they're gone. Um, and they will be eventually replaced by bombers, German bombers, which will uh, reach the UK as well. As well, but that's an, a story for another day. So let's go back to our, our friends, the, the Hull Pals. Tell us a little bit more about them, Pete. What, what did they do early in the war? And, and, and then as we go on, we're going to do a walk around Oppie Wood where they fought in 1917. Yeah, it's more more of a bimble list because it's not a it's not a big area at all. It's just a bimble. A, a bimble. It's just too. That, that, that sounds like a word that the Hull pals would have known well, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> so where, where do we start? So obviously, then, well, or interestingly, they are not going to go to uh, to France to start off with. They expected they would. They trained and were digging trenches and went down to uh, to Salisbury to do more training. Eventually, that's where they'll do their final training on Salisbury Plain, as most units did. Um, and in fact, they're in a, an area that uh, many Australian troops would recognise at the same period, Fovant. Um, I think Fovant is where the big um, Australian crest is carved into the into the white. Uh, the, the white. It is chalk. indeed on the on the Salisbury yeah. Plain. A lot of Australians exactly. were encamped here, and um, yeah. as as did many of their British and New Zealand and Canadian comrades. They took the opportunity to carve into the chalk soil and left the, their marks behind. Yeah, I can feel another podcast coming on. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so a, a place called Herdicott uh, Camp, which is uh, near to Fovant, and that's where they did their final training. And then suddenly they're issued with tropical helmets. And so there's a clue there. They're not, in fact, uh, going to the Western Front. They went to Egypt. So on the 30th of December 1915, uh, all uh, of the four battalions, 10th, 11th, 12th and 13th. So this is a brigade. So that's the next thing to say. The four battalions formed a brigade, the 92nd Brigade, in the 31st Division. And the 31st Division is allocated to the Suez Canal defences. And that's what they're worried about. Uh, Very topical at the moment with this uh, ship that's blocked the Suez Canal for several uh, days. Um, and they went to defend the uh, Suez Canal from Turkish attack because they were concerned that the Turks uh, may, may try and take it. And if they had done it, it would have caused us a big problem because uh, as it did this blockage of the canal just recently, then uh, it's uh, it's something that uh, most trade comes through there. Most of the soldiers coming from, well, Australians, they some of them would have come through the, uh, I'm sure some of them would have come through the um, the Suez Canal. Absolutely. All yeah. of them. So. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's also interesting we should note at this point as well that obviously being in Egypt at the end of 1915, you ask the big question about Gallipoli. And it is true that the, the earliest assembled PALS battalions were sent to Gallipoli right at the end of the campaign. So it's uh, so we, we always think of the Battle of the Somme as the time that the, the, the PALS battalions received their baptism of fire, but, um, but uh, quite a large number of them served at Gallipoli right at the end of the campaign. So um, they're going to uh, spend their time there, and they hated it. You have to have to say they hated it. Uh, the discipline was was strict. The food was appalling. The the weather was hot, and they were desperate to get to grips with the Hun. So they wanted to be in uh, in France. So on the sixteenth of March, they get there, uh, they get what they wanted, and they're shipped across uh, to uh, to France. So. Their first uh, battle they're going to be in, involved in is, is the battle that actually most of the PALS battalions uh, uh, get a blooding in, and that is the Battle of the Somme, the 1st of July 1916. And the 92nd uh, Brigade with the 31st Division was tasked uh, to attack Sir. 
Now, for anybody that's read anything uh, at all about the Battle of the Somme, Serre is a terrible place for the Sheffield Pals and the the the, the Barnsley Pals and uh, the, the Pals Battalions. It's where we go to commemorate them. In fact, Sheffield has a, a memorial there in, in Serre. And um, the whole Pals were very lucky. They were held back. They were not used during that attack, apart from carrying parties. They they take uh, casualties. But they they were very lucky that uh, after the the 1st of July and onwards into the Battle of Somme, uh, they were not uh, too badly damaged and and still had that feel of being a, a pals battalion. Because one of the the sadder aspects, of course, of raising a pals battalion, it only remains a pals battalion in that sense if you continue to supply reinforcements from the hometown. And because that was the big problem in most hometowns, could not continue supplying the reinforcements so so very quickly. That feel of it being just located with either Barnsley or Sheffield or one of the the cities that's involved, it loses that quite quickly. And the obvious thing we should say about um, the the Battle of the Somme and the Powell's Battalions is that the Powell's Battalions are a wonderful idea from the point of view of recruitment and training and esprit de corps. It's a fantastic idea. But if a battle goes badly wrong, as the Battle of the Somme did, it is absolutely devastating for the towns where those battalions came from. If you imagine these battalions going out and losing a huge number of men from the same battalion. That means a huge number of men from the same streets, towns and villages are all lost at the same time. So the the Battle of the Somme really left its mark, particularly in the north of England and these towns that had worked so hard only a couple of years earlier to raise these pals battalions and then saw a huge proportion of the young men from that town killed or wounded in the, in the, in the same action. Just, just absolutely devastating. Um, you're absolutely right, and I'm going to go off not, not quite on one of my famous tangents, but just a, a little bit. It, it's really my introduction to the First World War, uh, because I am going to lose a great uncle during the, this battle. He was serving in, in the Pals. I'll a little bit more about him later. But um, was my father uh, telling me that when he was a young man uh, growing up in Hull, uh, on the day of the battle, the 3rd of May... Uh, it used to be a day of mourning in Hull and everybody would walk about. My dad was born in 1920, direct results of his grandfather or his father returning from the uh, the First World War. Um, and he remembered everybody wearing black armbands. People all wore black armbands because they'd lost relatives. They put black crepe paper up in their windows to signify that they'd lost a relative. And the, the, the 3rd of May in Hull for a long time, really up until the Second World War, was a day that meant as much as Armistice Day, the 11th of November, uh, to, to the people of Hull as they remembered uh, uh, the terrible losses during this this battle that we're going to be talking about. So just quickly Pete before we uh, before we start our walk uh, what, what were the Hulls pals up to between the Battle of the Somme and, uh, and this this fight in May 1917? Well there's just one further action and, it, and it's the last gambit really of the Battle of the, uh, of the Somme. It's the Battle of the Ancre which is uh, the 13th of November so just before the Battle of the Somme, the bigger Battle of the Somme uh, finishes and they're attacking the same place. They're attacking in Serre and they're having a, a similar amount of luck but this time they were used so they did take uh, fairly heavy casualties uh, but they're spread among the battalions and as we're going to see, the casualties are 800, and you'd have to say that probably a third of those were immediately dead. And you're thinking, well, that sounds terrible in its own right. It is terrible, but it's not going to be as terrible as the as the battle at Oppie Wood. So they, and they still, because we had a big reserve still left, they were still able to fill most of those places with the reserve. So as we get into uh, 1917 and to the, towards the 3rd of May, then they still have have that feel of coming from one geographic area, which most of the other PALS battalions did not. 
Well, now we're moving forward to the action we're going to be following. Oppie Wood, tell us a little bit, uh, very briefly, about where it is and, and why it's important and why it became significant for the Hull Pals. Okay, well, Oppie is, it's a very quiet area, I have to say, and it's not particularly well visited. It's not an area that people, now I know this is the wrong thing to say, but you'll know what I mean. It's not the sexy part of the battlefield, it's not the Battle of the Somme, it's not Passchendaele, it's not Vimy Ridge. It, it, it is a, just as important as all of the rest, but it's not one that fires people's imagination. You, you could have to say that most of the Battle of Arras doesn't particularly fire people, uh, people's imagination. Let's hope that's changing. I think it is. I think people are starting to explore all the aspects, those that are interested, all aspects of the battlefields now. Um, and uh, so it, it's not that visited. It's funny enough, in, in uh, preparing for this uh, podcast. I've been looking at uh, what's online, what was available online, just refreshing my memory, and, and amazingly, very little. You, you, you know, there's there's not lots of pictures of the memorials in in Oppie or the village. So, so yeah, it's not the same as when you're researching the Somme. So, Oppie itself, a small village, uh, it's about uh, eleven, 11 kilometres northeast of Arras. Uh, population 400. I always use my village as a kind of a, a guideline. My village is population of around about 200. Well, I have to say, it doesn't feel uh, any larger than my village, so they must be spread out quite a, quite a bit because the village is quite a small village. Of course, because it was flattened like all of the others, it looks similar. All the houses are fairly much uh, the same style of brickwork. The church... Um, Art Deco, as a lot of them are, it's a very Art Deco church. No attempt to reproduce what had been there before, so we have a very Art Deco church. But the most striking thing in the square, in the middle of the village, well, there's two memorials, really, that are striking. The first one that, that we'll talk about is, uh, that's where we're going to stand. So we'll start off with, we're going to stand in front of the French Village Memorial. So this is just the Village Memorial, and it's to the glorious dead of the village of Oppie. Um but it's a very interesting one. It's not like a lot of war memorials in the area. It's a, a lot more warlike. This is a, a French soldier, grenade in hand. He's got the parapet behind him, throwing his grenade over the parapet. We see a German steel helmet in front of him. And that's interesting because very often the depiction is of a pickle hob, that, uh, that spiky, pointy leather helmet that we see in the early uh, days of the war and kind of recognised straight away when we think of the Germans. But it, it's depicting, on this memorial, it's depicting the steel helmet. So it's talking about the helmet of the period when the village was fought over 1917 uh, and uh, and so I, I enjoy this memorial I think it's an interesting one it's uh, as I, I've said this several times when we've been doing this podcast go and have a look at the local French memorial worthwhile to go and have a look at but then across the the, uh, the lawned area uh, with the wood behind it. So the wood actually comes right into the heart of the village here. And so the Oppie wood, the famous wood, is behind it. And we are actually, where we're standing is the German fortified village. This was held by the Germans. So, so to get to the wood, uh, to get to the village, then the Hull Pals are going to have to come. The 92nd Brigade is going to have to come through the wood and round both sides of it. And so we can see the wood uh, behind the memorial. And what is that memorial? Well, it's a memorial to the city of Hull. So very unusual to have a memorial commemorating a city. So it's not just to the Hull Pals, the 92nd Infantry Brigade. It is commemorating Hull on the Western Front. A lot of people don't realise that. They just think it's commemorating those men from Hull who died fighting here. It, it isn't. And so you have to say, why isn't it in Hull? Well, I'm not so sure. I don't know why it isn't in the city centre. We have a little... Um, or a large cenotaph there, but we don't have anything uh, as, I suppose, as touching as this, as moving as this. So what does it look like? Well, it's a, a big Christian cross with Christ on the cross. So we have Christ on the cross. 
um, and you actually walk up steps to get to it. So it's a big, it's a big memorial. So you walk up the steps to get to Christ on the cross. Um, behind it, if you walk back down the steps and go behind it, there is a long curving wall and there's a seat. And straight away, it gives you a clue here. This was built for pilgrims. This was built for people to sit around the memorial and to have a think about what went on here, because this was the place that people came from Hull. If you were coming to the Western Front or on one of the the, the large tours in the 1920s, the pilgrim tours, then this would be included. Not now. Very few people, or very few coaches will go to, unless it's very specific and they're following the PALS battalions, then they may come here. But but it's not a place that's visited very often. It's a great shame because it is designed. This memorial was designed for people to sit on these uh, on these seats uh, behind and around the memorial and, and to contemplate. I'm very lucky. Before uh, I lost my father, uh, we came uh, here together to the, uh, the the memorial, and I've got lots of pictures of us standing together, arm in arm, uh, remembering uh, our uh, his his uncle my great uncle and all of the the other uh, uh, lads from Hull who fought uh, in the great war and are commemorated here on this memorial if you're a regular listener to our podcast you would know that Pete and I are um, quite uh, quite fascinated by this pil- this period immediately after the first world war the great pilgrimages and and again I think as an Australian we don't quite understand the significance of it because Australians sadly never had the opportunity to participate the idea that an Australian would be able to travel to Europe and walk the battlefields where their son had been killed was just beyond the reach of most Australians at that time in the 1920s and the 1930s but not not so far from England so even the even the working families had the opportunity to take a long weekend and catch a ferry across and a train and and come to these sites where they'd lost sons and brothers and fathers. And it, it's a fascinating chapter. You go back through all of our podcasts and you'll hear us talking about it. To me, it's it's almost as fascinating as the story of the war itself, the, 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 the collective grief that followed this first huge world war and the tangible reminders that we still have on the battlefields today of those pilgrims that came over. So I, I always like to say that when we go to the memorials and the cemeteries, they, the, the creators knew that they would be there for centuries after after the, the original families had all long gone. Yet at the same time, there was a, a genuine need to build memorials, cemeteries and facilities that would enable literally hundreds of thousands of people to come and pay their respects to lost family members. It's just It's just a fascinating chapter of history, isn't it, Pete? Uh, it is indeed, and and it's something that has always fascinated me. And uh, being a, a bit of a collector, I can't help myself. I like collecting the souvenirs associated with their visits. So the photographs that they took of each other standing in front of the memorials, the rail tickets uh, that they they paid for, the badges that they wore if they're in organised groups. Uh, and it is it's a, it's a fascinating and very moving aspect of the war, especially when you get the the close up pictures of grieving parents with their standing uh, behind their son's headstone, uh, and. I I think those are probably some of the most moving photographs that, that, uh, that certainly I have in my collection and that you can see. It brings it home to you straight away that this is not just about fighting adventure and excitement, which for a lot of these young chaps, that's what they thought it was going to be. This is about loss, and memory um, and heartbreak, really. And uh, yeah, and so, so, yeah, coming here, you can, you can, sitting on, on this seat with a memorial in front of you, that, then you, you can think about that. And certainly when I was there with, with my father, that's what, that's what we thought about. About. So, where to next on our? Was it was it a bimble around? Yeah, a bimble, a bimble. <laughs> so, so we're just going to go around the wood. So, I'm just going to try and put it in in perspective again. So, this is a a wood that um, is in front of the the village, and we are attacking from the far side uh, of that wood. 
And one battalion is being held in reserve, and we have three battalions that are in the attack. So the 12th, and this is us now looking from the far side of the wood. You have to use your imagination here. We're looking into the wood, and beyond the wood, we can see the remnants of the village. And that's where we're standing now within that village. But imagine you're on the other side. And we've got the 12th East Yorks on the left. We've got the 11th East Yorks, which will have to push through the wood. And the 10th East Yorks on the right. Now, I need to, what I need to say straight away is this is a disaster. Now, you knew I was going to say that because, of course, what we're commemorating are the terrible losses. So very few people will get through the wood at all. On the right-hand side, some of the 10th Battalion actually managed to get into the uh, into the village. Now, we don't know this until later on or perhaps even after the war because those guys were taken prisoner. Um, they, they didn't uh, get back. So it's, uh, we'll be discussing why it's a disaster in a second, but it's, it's a terrible disaster. So what we're going to do is we're going to now go walk our way slowly round until we're on the side of where they're attacking from. Um, and the first thing we're actually going to bump into is a post. It's just a straightforward post. Now I have to say and hold my hand up here. I have not seen this post. This is fairly recent and it's commemorating a Victoria Cross action and it's a, a chap, um, uh, who, uh, uh, gave his life here as an officer. He's, he's called uh, Second Lieutenant uh, Jack Harrison. His actual name was John, but every, uh, everybody knew him as Jack. Um, and he, he lost his life taking a machine gun position. We're going to read his citation in a minute uh, by himself. Uh, and just uh, and purely a selfish act. I think by then they knew they weren't going to uh, to go any further forward. But he just feels this machine gun has to be taken out. I think it's to allow his men to either dig in and try and hold the land or to fall back. And so he will lose his, his life there. For me, he was uh, somebody who I've known about almost all my life. And I was very lucky that for a short period, I actually earned his memorial scroll. So something that was given to his wife um, and uh, and eventually, sadly, lost. It was actually found on a rubbish dump. And it's the memorial scroll that came with the death plaque and the medals. Some, one of the parts of the things that were given to the families on their on their deaths. And so for a short period, I earned this. So uh, I, f I feel, felt very honoured uh, to have earned it. And I know it went to yet another good, uh, a good home from myself. Um, so he... He was a true Hull man. He'd, uh, he'd been born in Hull. He'd uh, become a teacher in Hull. He'd actually went to York to be educated, um, uh, which uh, York is, uh, uh, if anybody's been to York, a very nice place to go to. Very famous for the Romans and the ruins. I'm going to go off in a tangent if I'm not careful, so I'm going to draw myself back in. Um, and he taught in a, one of the rougher schools in, in Hull, actually called Lime Street School. Uh, I've got in my notes here, rough as hell. So it's uh, near the Docklands area, the docks uh, of Hull, when the docks were going flat out um but what, what i'm also interested in he was a very keen sportsman and he played for hull fc and in 1914 uh, they were in the uh, the cup final um and uh, he won he scored one of the winning tries uh, and they uh, successfully beat wakefield uh, six i, be I believe uh, six in, foot in football that's actually known as a goal not a try <laughs> no it's rugby so so oh he's playing uh, rugby he is but we call it rugby football and here it's just uh, at that time they just call it football um so just to confuse things it's like football so Hull, in australia Hull fc is a rugby club it is yeah, yeah. fascinating and they only won the game 6-0 so okay yeah. Hence um, my confusion. Yeah, indeed. Um, so uh, this was the, the Challenge Cup in, uh, in 1914. Um, so a uh, crowd, just a matter of interest, crowd of 19,000. So uh, enormous, uh, enormous uh, uh, crowds at that time. Um, and um, he 
was late in joining, I have to say, because because he had so much going on, a teacher, a sportsman, etc., etc. He he didn't um, actually uh, apply for a commission. He went to an officer training uh, college and by uh, commissioned on the 4th of August in 1916. And then obviously because of his background, he, was, he went to the East Yorkshire Regiment and to the 11th Battalion and commanded C Company during this, uh, this attack. Sadly, like most of the guys who were killed during this, this this fighting, he is on the memorial to the missing in Arras, uh, because that's where the, the, the soldiers who are missing in this area end up on the Arras memorial to the missing, uh, a place we've not been, Matt, and I'd quite like to go there. On one of our podcasts, I think we need to go to the Arras uh, uh, memorial to the missing. It's a, a fascinating area there as well. Um, as is uh, sadly my great uncle, he is uh, he is also on that memorial, and and he was serving in the twelfth battalion, um, and uh, he's Arthur Smith, difficult man to research for obvious reasons, um, but he is perhaps uh, when we're allowed to uh, to travel and walk the battlefields again, Pete, we should uh, we should do a live podcast as we go and visit some of these sites around Arras. Yeah, because there's a lot of good ones to see. Yeah, I agree entirely, and uh, yeah, interestingly. Uh, the Aris Memorial, no, I'm going to spoil the Aris talk, the Memorial talk, but you cannot see his name very clearly. I'm, uh, I often feel like uh, getting a, taking a, some step ladders is right at the top on one of, pa- one of the panels to go and get a good photograph of his name. Like, you can't really photograph it from the, uh, from the floor. So I'm just going to read you, um, uh, Jack Harrison's, uh, M- uh, MC. He'd already been awarded the MC. So his VC citation. For most conspicuous bravery and self-sacrifice in an attack, owing to darkness and to smoke from the enemy barrage and from our own, to the fact that our objective was in uh, was a dark wood, it was impossible to see where our barrage had lifted off the enemy front line. And it gives you an idea of the confusion here. This is a night attack, and there was an awful lot of confusion, an awful lot of... Uh, uh, a lack of shell fire from our point of view, so no proper creeping barrage. And when what there had been, this barrage that moves forward at the same speed that you are, they were supposed to be 50 paces behind it. Um, they lost touch with it, and in fact, they lost it. They weren't even sure where the barrage had gone. Nevertheless, 2nd Lieutenant Harrison led his company against the enemy trench under heavy rifle and machine gun fire, but was repulsed. Reorganising his command as best he could in no man's land, he again attacked in darkness under terrific fire, but with no success. Then turning round, this gallant officer single-handedly made a dash at the machine gun, hoping to knock out the gun, and so save the lives of many of his company. His self-sacrifice and absolute disregard of danger was an inspiring example to all. He is reported missing, believed, killed, and that, that was absolutely correct. Now, I've got, I've got another little chapter heading here, which I think is, is something that is interesting. How did Hull react to the terrible news of this, these appalling casualties? And just to give you an idea, a thousand men in the battalion, um, let's say eight, seven hundred, eight hundred in the attack. Well, most of these battalions were at half strength by the end of, end of this, uh, this fighting. And yet when we look at the casualty records, they don't appear to be, t- well, or any casualties bad. But the 10th Battalion was reporting 100 men dead, 11th Battalion, 63 men dead, and the 12th Battalion, 83 men dead. And it gives you a completely wrong impression because that doesn't include the missing, which the majority will be dead. It doesn't include those that will die as, and that's why we use the term casualties, that will die later on because of their wounds. It doesn't even include those that have been taken prisoner. So so it, it's if you look at the outright dead at the roll calls, then it doesn't appear to be uh, too terrible. It's only later on when they start compiling the figures 
that we realised how bad the casualties were. And so, well, in fact, some of the battalions, two of them were down to two companies at the end. Uh, and uh, so so literally, literally uh, only less than a third of the men uh, returning from the, the, the fighting. Just, um, just horrific. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was. So how did how did Hull react to it? Well, interestingly, I've researched and been interested in the Hull papers of this time for a long, long time. And what you find is that is that there's no sudden outcry. Well, of course there wouldn't be because by the time we get to 1917, the newspapers have been pumping out these list of casualties day after day after day with biographies of a lot of the men. And in fact, there was almost a knee-jerk reaction to it in the end. We've got to stop doing this. This is this is terrible. You know, this is depressing and people are not buying the newspapers anymore, if you think of it from a from a financial point of view. We need to stop putting so much information about the casualties in, in the newspapers. So what we get now are really, we're getting to just lists but the lists are not great, and there's a very good reason why the lists are not great, because the majority of these men who have been killed are missing. So nobody is getting that that, uh, that that terrible telegram that is saying your relative is dead. They're going to start receiving telegrams that are saying that they're missing, um, and sometimes presumed dead. But it's missing is, is the key here. So we don't get this instant impact in Hull where everybody's going, oh my God, what has happened? It, it, it's appalling. What I'm going to go off on, on a little tangent here. What is very interesting about Hull is Hull, along with, I think it's, no, I can't remember which other, there's another town in England that did this as well. But Hull is famous for its street shrines. Every street in Hull, or the majority of streets in Hull, started sticking up shrines at the end of the street. And sometimes they were very ornate and very well produced, and sometimes they were just a pot of flowers with a with something pasted on the wall with a list of all the men that had enlisted from the street. But they, they started vying with each other. So the shrines got bigger, the flowers got bigger, they built glass cabinets, they did all sorts, they listed the men from the streets and then they marked on them the ones that had been killed. And so, and you can buy photographs of those streets if you go to the junk shops and rummage, rummage around and look online. You can get photographs of these shrines and you can see that they're, they're fantastic and they're very, very interesting. There are just a few that survive uh, to this day in Hull. But it was uh, it was a big part of the life in Hull. They felt proud and the streets felt proud as to how many men had enlisted from each street. And so they are where you would have gone and started to realise how bad the casualties were were becoming. It's that local commemoration that's fascinating as well to imagine those shrines with those names being crossed off or marked as men were killed from the street is just just appalling. And I think the same thing whenever I go to all memorials in Australia. Uh, there's one at Manly, for example, in the, on the beach in Sydney and in my hometown in West Wylong. But you often see these large memorials with, with panels all over them that are now full of names. But you think when the memorials were constructed during the First World War, often quite early during the First World War, they had to have the foresight to leave these panels blank, knowing that they would be filling them with names as as the war went on. And and what did that mean for the families whose whose sons were away serving to walk past that memorial every day and see those huge blank panels just waiting to be filled? You know the the dread that was looming in those panels, waiting to be filled with names of the dead from that local community. Just just awful. The the, the stresses of the families having to deal with their sons being away for this length of time and and in many cases eventually being killed was just enormous um, i'm going to off on a tangent i can't help it this is definitely tangent time in the center of england we have something called the national arboretum have you been to the national arboretum matt i have not no it's where the memorial to modern warfare is 
and the, the the memorial to modern warfare is a series of carving walls. Uh, it has some beautiful bronzes in the middle. It's got a medic bending over a, a chap on a stretcher and a little door behind her. And on the on the eleventh, um, the eleventh of the eleventh, the, the rising sun shines through the crack in the door and lights up her face. So uh, very cleverly designed. But it's the carving walls because the carving walls are blank. They are waiting each year. The year is put on, and the names of those British soldiers, uh, 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 airmen, sailors, uh, who died in in conflict, are then put onto that wall. So it's one of the most shocking aspects of it. It's designed for the future with these blank walls, and so it's uh, an amazing memorial, well worth going there. It's also the National Arboretum is where we put all of our war memorials. Now new war memorials are put there. The memorial to the uh, shot at dawn is there. Uh, there are memorials to the Arctic convoys. Uh, uh, the memorial to um, uh, to the Falklands War is there, so it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic place to, uh, to go to uh, to go if you're interested in memorials and, and and warfare, I suppose. Sounds extraordinary. I'll certainly check it out next time I'm over in Europe, whenever that whenever that may be. I'm just I'm I'm just noting your biography here of um of Jack Harrison who won the VC and his memorial that led to this discussion in the first place. Also, his son served in the Second World War. Tell us briefly about his son. He did. This is terrible um, because uh, his his son um, ha, ha, was born obviously uh, while he w- he was serving, um, or bef- uh, just before he was uh, he left uh, to go on service because he, he married uh, during the war. And whether he saw his son or not, I'm not sure uh, whether he'd actually uh, met his son. I've, I've got a feeling he did see his son before he went off to war. Um, but of course, with him being killed, there was then a shortage of money and money was raised for his education. So he actually had a very good education because it was it was paid for uh, uh, by people uh, donating. Um, and uh, by the time of the Second World War, he was uh, a captain in the Duke of Wellington's, the West Riding Regiment. And sadly, he lost his life at Dunkirk. He was with uh, the West, uh, uh, the Duke of Wellington's actually held the perimeter um, as they were evacuating, and he was uh, he was killed while holding the perimeter. Um, so yeah, terrible uh, end of the family line. And in fact, I know the the whole story of that because uh, his uh, um, his mum then was uh, was left with nobody because he was the only uh, the only child. And uh, eventually, when uh, the the uh, the scroll that I owned was found, it was found on a rubbish dump when she died. They were uh, they cleared the the house house and and it was thrown away. So it's um, yeah. she'd actually thankfully donated the, the Victoria Cross to the uh, regimental museum. So it's it's held in the regimental museum, but somehow or other the uh, the scroll uh, was not. How many more of those little stories are out there, Pete, of families torn apart by both world wars? Just 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 awful. The same in Australia. I come across it all the time. Of of young men killed in the First World War and then their sons uh, killed in the Second World War. Just, just terrible, the impact of those two huge wars. I, I think it's one of the one of the sadder aspects, isn't it, is that uh, my, my father, who didn't fight in the Second World War because he was in a reserved occupation, um, was exactly the right age for fighting in the Second World War. He was born in 1920. And, of course, you know, my grandfather would have, would have had him thinking that uh, the, the world is now safe. I've just been involved in the war to end all wars. I can have my children you know, not have to worry about what, what's coming. And, of course, sadly, all of those the chaps that, that went down that line and had children in, in 1920 or thereabouts, they're going to be exactly the right age to fight in the Second World War. Terrible stuff, mate. Let's hope it doesn't happen again. Indeed, yeah, indeed. Where else in Oppie are we exploring? 
Right, well, we're just going to carry on uh, walking uh, around the woods. Uh, there's, there's, I've just put here nuances, really. You have to look carefully when you're walking around uh, these uh, the, these locations, these battlefield locations. We just have a little roadside marker here. It's on the side of the road, N50, and just beneath it, it's, it says Hull, 580 kilometres. So it's the searches. I just found that just just fascinating. We have these little little nuances of the uh, of the battlefield. I just I just went I want to go back a little bit. I forgot to mention something. Um, that the the land where the memorial is. The, this is the Hull Memorial to the uh, Kingston upon Hull Memorial. And that's the other thing I should should just say. Hull is not its full title. It is Kingston upon Hull. Uh, but everybody just knows Hull as Hull um, or Hull. Um, and the land was donated by uh, a. Um, <laughs> I can't even pronounce. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce this. It's a viscount and a viscountess. They donated the land uh, because their son had been killed in 1918, and they felt that they wanted to give something back to the uh, to the, the the town that had uh, had offered so many of its own dead to to try and uh, take oppie back under under french control so they uh, they donated the the piece of land which i think is is fascinating in, in its own right and moving reading your notes mate i respect your efforts not to uh, attempt to pronounce that incredible french name but uh, we do we do pay our we pay our respects to them nonetheless we do <laughs> so what's what's our next stop on the walk this one you'd have to jump in your car and i think so let's imagine that we've walked right the way around the wood and in walking around the wood we've walked right into uh, uh the frontline german positions they are on the far side of the wood nothing there now at all you can't go into the wood i've always been a little aggrieved that you can't go into the wood um you can understand why there's always been people that are interested in having a poke about it's a shooting wood um it's one that's used for uh, for coppicing and for for taking the timber out for firewood mainly um, so it's it's protected. You can't go into it, um, but you can certainly walk around this and have a good uh, gander through the the fence. And in fact, it has got a very good barbed wire fence right the way around, so you can't even sneak into it as you can with some. I wouldn't suggest you do, of course, uh, but with with some you can. So we're going to walk back into town and, and back to the church itself. Now, inside the church, there are a few little memorials that have been placed on the walls commemorating uh, Hull. And I think one of the one of the stained glass windows in there as well was paid for by the by the city in the rebuilding of the of the church. Um, I have to say, it's a little while since I've been myself. Obviously, for uh, eighteen months now, we've not been really able to to travel. But even before then, uh, I spend a lot of time my guiding time on the Australian battlefield. So I'll, I'm looking forward to going back, having done this podcast. I want to go back as soon as we uh, we we are able the question I, I put a little note here is well where do they lie those that were were killed here uh, in this in this battle where do they lie well that's a very good question because a lot of them um are are still in the landscape around us as as the as as we've discussed uh, uh, an awful lot in these podcasts um but uh in this case, there is a, a cemetery that's that's close by called Orchard Dump Cemetery. Fairly horrible name when you think dump, because it gives you horrible connotations of the dumping of bodies. But that's not not the, where the, the name comes from at all. It's the dumping of ammunition, the dumping of supplies. It's normally a crossover point. A dump uh, area is where they're dumping off supplies and picking up supplies. But of course, it's also a medical crossover area where perhaps stretcher bearers are bringing wounded men back they're leaving them there. They'll, uh, they're then being picked up. So it's a changeover point. Normally involves uh, some kind of medical post, and they're going to be evacuated from that position. So that's the dump aspects. So it's not to do with dumping bodies. So Orchard Dump Cemetery gives you another clue. There's probably an orchard close by. 
Um, and it has 3,000 uh, graves uh, or commemorations. Some of them are on panels, but uh, 3,000 uh, soldiers commemorated the majority with graves. But of that 3,000, 2,200 are unknown. So the bulk of this cemetery is uh, a soldiers that we don't know who they are. We may sometimes know the regiments, but we don't know who they are. And if you walk up and down the gravestones, you'll see East York badges everywhere here. Um, so again, it's the, one of the terrible aspects. The recovery of bodies here was almost impossible. Well, it's just fascinating, Pete. I mean, it's it's just so important after we walk in action like this to go and see where the, the, the men who were killed there lie. And isn't it wonderful to be able to... Not wonderful, that's not the right word, but isn't it uh, appropriate that we can walk the ground, see where they fought and died, and then go and pay our respects to them in a, in a, in a big cemetery like this one, and, and reflect on the fact that so many are still missing, that so many are unknown, so many were lost and, and have no known grave. Just a, an extraordinary action and an extraordinary walk around a, an important little corner of the Western Front. I think wonderful is not a bad word, Matt. I, I uh, you know, to my mind, I mean, this is where we, we presume, uh, because we'd like to think he had a grave. He may not, but uh, my great uncle, this is where we presume he is. And we've picked a grave some, some years ago. Uh, my father and myself, we picked a grave and we said, okay, this is now going to be our great uncle. Now, we don't know that it is at all, but it is what lots of people, lots of people do exactly the same. They pick a soldier um, of the regiment. Um, um, and possibly some of these guys are dated. We know what day they died, so that's even better if you can find one that was killed on the on the right day as well. Uh, still unknown, of course. And uh, then you can imagine that he may be your relative, and, and you can place your wreath and your poppies uh, there. And that's what that's what we do when we come here. There's another very unusual aspect of this cemetery as well. Every Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery has a plaque on the wall, which actually uh, basically says that it, it was, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was given by the French in perpetuity, in other words, or the Belgians in perpetuity. In other words, it was given to us for forever for our use. Here, it's very different. Uh, it says that it's a gift of uh, Madame Wartel to the memory of her husband, uh, who was a captain in the 72nd uh, French infantry who fell on the field of honour on the 27th of August 1914. So it's another gift. This is a gift of a landowner who is saying, uh, I am going to give you this land uh, for you to, uh, to to bury your dead in and I'm giving it to uh, to you in perpetuity. So, so very unusual. I don't think I've ever seen an inscription on a wall in any other cemetery that says who gifted it. Just fascinating, Pete. The whole walk has been fascinating, both for a, a battlefield perspective, but also that connection with your your hometown back in England. Just a really extraordinary, mate. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing it. Anything else you'd like to add before we uh, before we wrap the walk up today? There's a, for those that are interested in in paintings. There's a, a, a beautiful painting by uh, uh, and it's a painting of it of its time. It's got that arty deco feel. John Nash and it's called Oppywood. 1917 evening and it gives you an idea because the one thing that i mustn't let you uh, go away thinking that we are talking about uh, we have discussed this before but it's well worth reiterating when we discuss fighting in woods by the time the soldiers get to grips with an enemy anywhere near a wood during the great war you can fairly much say that the wood no longer exists it is just twisted and destroyed branches and certainly there are some very good aerial photographs of oppie wood at this period and yes there are standing trees here but the majority of them have been 
sheared off at the knee height or just above and there's there's basically split and, and timber bits of timber and roots everywhere so they were very very difficult to fight within and especially if you're fighting uh, uh, within the dark um, I, I should just say that this battle took place I think it was 335 that it started in the morning and it was uh, it, it was not a good time because it's not going to get lighter for a couple of hours and so most of the tough fighting was done in complete darkness and yet there had been a terrible aspect prior to that that when we formed up so when the battalions formed up it was a full moon so the forming up in preparation of the battle was done in very bright moonlight uh, and it was behind us so the germans could see us and that's why we have so many casualties because even before the battle started the full moon silhouetted the, the men forming up and they were shelled unbelievably heavily uh, before zero hour well, Pete, thank you so much for sharing uh, this walk with us again. One that, uh, well, that I never would have done uh, had you not uh, had you not suggested it. And uh, just important to remember uh, the men from Hull and uh, indeed all the men who died in these in these actions, these lesser known actions on the Western Front. It's important we don't forget them. So, thank you so much for for sharing this one with us. We'll put it on the list of places that I need to take you, Matt. <laughs> Mate, I can't wait. Let's hope that this virus uh, <laughs> allows us to do that before too long. We're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, and I, I can't wait to get back there, Pete, and, and walk the ground with you, and this one will be right at the top of the list. Good. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.